Orphan Black, the next chapter, is back for season two, and it's bigger than ever. The official continuation of the hit TV show stars Emmy Award-winning actress Tatiana Maslany as all of the clones. And this season, she's joined by original TV show cast members Jordan Gavaris as Felix, Evelyn Brochu as Delphine, and Christian Brune as Donnie. Season two picks up where season one left off with, spoiler alert, the secret of the clones finally exposed to the general public. Hundreds of previously unaware clones grapple with the news that they are part of a massive military science experiment. Meanwhile, anti-clone protesters fight to have the clones' rights restricted. Caught in the middle, the Sestras want peace, and when an unforeseen threat turns their world upside down, they must join forces with former enemies to protect the ones they love. Orphan Black, the next chapter, is available right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to listen and subscribe, or visit realm.fm for more information. The views, information, or opinions expressed during this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and did not necessarily represent those of AMC Networks and its employees. It was clear that in the weeks leading up to Jennifer's death, Robert was spiraling downward in a rapid fashion. Something kept tapping me on the shoulder. That's not quite right. That doesn't feel right. There were a lot of people in that bar that night that saw them leave together and knew that Jennifer liked him a lot. And he got this look on his face, and it was in this split second, and I was like, oh my God, I gotta get out of here. The last thing in my mind was, oh, you're gonna get strangled in Central Park, don't go. This person who was your best friend, this magnetic, kind, funny, warm person, was killed? After that, I just walked home, and I just went to sleep. And when I woke up, I thought it was a dream. You thought this was all a dream? When I woke up at first, I was like, you know, that had to be a dream. This narrative has become something completely different than what it actually was. This story has never been told. I'm haunted ultimately by what happened that night. It's 10 p.m. Do you know where your children are? Welcome back to The Truth About True Crime. I'm your host, Amanda Knox. This season, we've been looking into a tragic and layered story, the killing of Jennifer Levin by Robert Chambers, as seen in the Sundance TV docuseries, The Preppy Murder, Death in Central Park. The trauma, the media distortion, and the grand symbolism that has grown around this case make it hard to see the whole picture in a single snapshot. So far, we've walked the battleground of storytelling at trial. Now, it's time to get down into the weeds, to meet the real flesh and blood kids at the center of this saga, and to shine a light upon the edges of a tiny black hole that has always remained a mystery. The motive prosecutor Linda Fairstein was unable to pinpoint at trial the reason Robert Chambers killed Jennifer Levin. To do so, we'll be spending most of our time in this episode with their immediate peers, Peter Davis and Jessica Doyle, who are Jennifer Levin's best friends, and Alex Capp, who was dating Robert Chambers in the weeks leading up to Levin's murder. All three of them moved through a very particular slice of New York City in the 80s. It was the glorious 80s, and nobody wanted to be responsible. We were having a wonderful time. But that doesn't mean that people were, you know, okay. 
That's Jessica Doyle. I grew up on the Upper East Side, and kids on the Upper East Side grew up fast. We were in New York City, and we were 16, 17, 18, and going to nightclubs with or without fake IDs. It was pretty easy to get in anywhere you wanted. Peter Davis. What were you guys up to? Boy, um, what weren't we up to? It was just a different time. That's Alex Cap. It was like nobody had parents. It was sad. I feel like we all kind of were running rogue a little bit, clubbing and drinking and smoking a lot of cigarettes, and there was a lot of cocaine around. And, you know, girls having sex at 12 and proud of it, talking about it. We were all trying to be the grown ups our parents were, but I think everybody's parents were boozing and, you know, out in the country. Hmm. And they weren't paying much attention. To hear Cap talk about it, the Upper East Side was wild and lawless for wealthy teens. But did that make it unique? I asked Peter Davis. So do you think the Upper East Side was kind of exotified or fetishized for this trial? Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, they definitely made it seem like, you know, rich kids gone wild. A lot of people thought like, oh, this is bound to happen. Mm -hmm. Like it was only a matter of time. Which is just BS. Hmm. People imagine that everyone's doing cocaine and has, has drug problems. Really, wasn't like that. It was pretty much the same as growing up anywhere, except we were doing it, drinking beer and alcohol, cigarettes, pot, the usual things, and nightclubs surrounded by adults. The center of their nightlife was a place called Dorian's Red Hand. It was like a clubhouse, a private preppy club that you had to know about it, like an insider secret. It was so normal for us to be there that, you know, I would I was able to tell my parents I was going to Dorian. It wasn't glamorous. It's a basically an Irish sports bar on the Upper East Side. Dorian's was always where you ended up or where you started off. It was where all the preppy kids hung out. And Jennifer Levin was just one of the kids, a starry-eyed teen coming from Long Island. Jessica Doyle met her in 1984, when they worked together in Soho at French Connection. She lived in Soho, and her father worked in real estate, and her stepmother owned a beautiful, exquisite um, lingerie, you know, uh, very fancy underwear and bras, you know, silky, lacy, fancy, and it was called Jouvet. She had this beautiful shop called Jouvet on West Broadway and um, and Prince Street. And so Jennifer very much came from a world of the haves, but it was not the same haves as my world. Jessica Doyle and Peter Davis both refer to Jennifer Levin as their best friend. What I remember most about her was her sense of humor. She was really good at mimicking people and imitations. We would make jokes about silly things like snozzages was one thing that they had come out with at the time. <laughs> yeah, which was like these dog treats, but we just, we would use it as a word to say essentially, oh damn, or oh crap, you know, we'd be like, oh, snozzages. But then we would also <laughs> say snozzages to say something good, like snozzages. Like she was self-deprecating. <laughs> and funny. She never took herself seriously, and she was also a really loyal friend. We all 
gave each other those um, string bracelets. She would make mm-hmm. them and beaded bracelets, like what Madonna had in the 80s, but the hippie version. She embraced the joys of things. She was not a kind of sort of silent, kind of sulky type, not a shrinking violet. I think you could say in a very kind of lighthearted way she was rebellious, but I think being a lover of life and someone who's up for adventure, that inherently makes you rebellious. I mean, the more I learn about Jennifer, the more I feel like I can relate to her mm-hmm. because, you know, it's not like you're, you know, you're going on dates or you're wearing funny clothes because you're trying to like tell the world that they're wrong. You're just like, oh, this is my way and I'm happy this way, you know, so. There you go. You hit the nail on the head. I mean, we're talking about somebody who is declaring their identity on their own terms. But is that really rebellious? No, actually, it's courageous and kind of like the joy of life, right? It sounds like she had faith in life. Like she trusted that to get the most out of her experience and to she trusted people. She definitely had faith in life. Definitely. It's a good term of it. That is a good term to use. That's exactly what she had. She had faith in life, and she had faith in people, and she loved people, and people loved her. Robert Chambers was a study in contrast, but he was one of the kids, too. Jessica Doyle had been friends with him for years. Robert was a very quiet, silent type Mm-hmm. Like one of those guys who was like really good looking but didn't say anything. So as a result of his silence, he was easy to have around. He was kind of like arm candy. He would be jokey and kind of snarky and like sort of sarcastic. I'm like, oh, yeah, oh, oh, you know, like, oh, oh, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> he wasn't a jock. Mm. He wasn't an intellectual either. Chambers sounds like an average dude from an average background, but his mother wanted more for him. Mrs. Chambers worked as a private nurse for prominent families, the Hammersteins and the Hearsts. She had worked for Jackie Kennedy at one point. She saw how the other half lived, and she wanted her son to be in that world. He would get a great job, marry some wealthy girl, have beautiful little rich children. And, you know, she, she wanted a Kennedy. This was her vision. Unfortunately, Robert Chambers did not live up to the potential his mother imagined for him. This personal failure was of particular note to prosecutor Linda Fairstein and Detective Mike Sheehan. Phyllis pushed him into the places that she thought would help him succeed, but he couldn't. He went to middle school at St. David's. He went to Choate. He was thrown out of Choate. Then to the Browning School. This time he was thrown out for stealing a teacher's wallet. He kept getting kicked out. He ended up in York Prep. One headmaster wrote of him. Robert does not do his work, nor does he deal realistically with this situation. There is a possibility, therefore, that he will not graduate. Letter after letter was exactly like this. His mother had put all of her hopes on this kid, and it seemed like every effort she made to take him higher was wasted and he would fail. This is not the kid who we thought he was. 
He was under a lot of pressure at home, that was obvious, and he certainly wasn't rich. And his peers, Jessica Doyle and Peter Davis, noticed this too. Robert seemed on paper and just a face value, like handsome, cool, you know, a little bit of a rebel. But I don't think she knew or anyone else knew just how screwed up he was. He was often alone at the bar at Dorian's. And I definitely heard the rumors that he was a druggie. He was quiet and he was sort of depressed. He was definitely an addict. Plus, he was not honest. He was stealing Hmm. from his friend's parents. Robert would try to go to these parties, especially younger kids, and, you know, steal their mom's jewelry. You know what he was, basically? He was like a guy who was really pent up. Mm. You know those types who just, like, they're just holding it in and holding it in and holding it in and holding it in? I don't think he's Ted Bundy. I don't think he's a serial killer. I think he was a wound up, troubled guy that self-medicated. But to 16-year-old Alex Cap, who was three years younger than Chambers, these traits made him intriguing and attractive. I didn't know who he was until he sort of showed up in my junior year in high school at Dorian's. And so I sort of, there was always this mystery, like, where did he come from? And the stories were varied. Like, he'd been in rehab and he'd been kicked out of choke. The mystery was part of what made him, I think, so appealing. They first met at a party on the Upper West Side. He was just staring at me all night. I think I approached him and said, are you mad at me or something? Like, you're just staring at me so intently. And he said something to the effect of, it's not that I'm mad at you, it's just that you're so goddamn beautiful. Hell, if I was a teenager, that line would have worked on me too. So now if you're 16 and a really strikingly handsome older guy that everybody wants says that to you, it's pretty heady. And that, that was it. I mean, I was sunk, I think, from the moment I met him. From then on, they were a thing. I'd never had a boyfriend. I remember lying in bed, dressed, just having like long talks staring at the ceiling about feeling disdain for what we were growing up in, about what we wanted to be. We talked about feeling like we didn't belong. So I felt like we had this connection, like he really saw me. Nothing will bond two teenagers like imposter syndrome. He felt like he wasn't quite what everybody thought he was and that he wasn't a blue blood, like the way that all these you know, kids with fancy last names were. But he was quiet. He laughed, but he wasn't particularly funny. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was very intense. Like the eye contact with that guy was like, I almost had to look away sometimes, but didn't give over a lot of himself in terms of who he really was. He didn't need to, to hook young Alex Cap. I had sex with Robert maybe the third time we hung out. It was my first time. I felt like this was my first love. Meanwhile, Robert Chambers was seeing other people. And Alex Cap wasn't the only girl charmed by his handsome loner vibe. Jennifer Levin was too. I remember her saying to me, 
I want to meet Robert. I had known him for six or seven years at that point. And I was like, sure, I can do that. He wasn't a big talker, and I think that's probably why she thought he was intriguing, is he was this kind of quiet loner. Did she talk about him? She did. She said she liked him. She said that she liked having sexual relations with him. Mm. So she told me. Mm. I thought that was great. I mean, (laughs) you know. I don't think there was a deep connection. More like when you're in high school and you think someone's quote-unquote hot or cute or seems popular, mm-hmm. and that's why you like them. But according to Jennifer Levin's older sister, Danielle, she was invested. She started to tell me about a guy named Robert and that he was kind of a lost soul. And she was trying to help him and that he really loved her perspective and her point of view. I think what she saw in Robert was what she saw in like, you know, the wounded animal. She probably thought that she could fix him and make him better. It's practically right out of The Breakfast Club. The good girl wants to fix the bad boy, get past his armor and worm her way into his heart. It's a trope for a reason, but it doesn't usually end like it does in the movies. It was a relationship like when I cried to her. I we didn't really have... She felt it was more special than I did. And you had sex with her? I had sex with her three times, twice at two different friends' house, and once on a roof. There's a casual cruelty in the way Chambers describes his relationship with Jennifer Levin. But it's hardly uncommon in teen relationships. And it certainly doesn't explain or prefigure the tragedy that was about to come. There was something else a ticking time bomb that had nothing to do with Jennifer Levin. The summer of 1986, the summer of the murder, he had reached a real low. In April, Chambers was caught stealing again, this time by the parents of yet another girl he was seeing. They sat down with Robert Chambers and his mother on a Sunday in their home. Robert apologized, and Mrs. Chambers begged, don't report this to the police. I promise to have Robert on a plane tomorrow if you don't prosecute. A plane to Hazelden, a drug treatment facility in Minnesota. The girl's parents agreed, and Chambers boarded a plane. It was supposed to be a six-month program. Uh, He dropped out in early August, came home. The detox did not work. Phyllis was so upset that he dropped out of Hazelden that she did not let him live in the house and he was actually living in a basement apartment helping the super paint buildings. Alex Cap was ready and waiting to care for him. He came back from LaGuardia Airport and he came to my house first. He had told me he was visiting his aunt in Boston. My mom was home, and he said he was really tired, and he went up to my room to lie down for a bit, for probably three or four hours. I finally went up and checked on him, and he had sweat through my entire bedding, mattress, mattress cover. And I I was like, what's wrong with you? And he was kind of woozy, and he said, I don't know, maybe I've got the flu or something. And so I went and got my mom, and I said, I think he's sick. And, you know, she was like, I think she just had a feeling that there was something off. And I couldn't see it. Nobody saw it. She saw it but I was 16 years old, you know, what's the worst he could be? 
it was clear that in the weeks leading up to Jennifer's death, Robert was spiraling downward in a rapid fashion. And it led Cap to look at her relationship with Chambers in a whole new light. She finally started seeing the red flags that had been there all along. You know, something kept tapping me on the shoulder. That's not quite right. That doesn't feel right. Little things, little lies or things that didn't feel right or inconsistencies. And, and I kind of ignored them and I ignored my gut. I was working in a guy the makeup counter at the school drugstore right near my apartment. You know, it was my summer job and he came to visit me and just hung out for a bit and then he left. And a day or two later, the manager of the drugstore called me into his office and said, um, some stuff went missing. And I need to ask you, did you take anything from the counter? And I said, what are you talking about? And he said, a pack of Marlboros on a lip liner. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh my God, he came to my work and he stole something. I knew, I knew instantly. I was like, oh my God, he stole from my job. And it wasn't just thieving. It was lying. One night, while Cap and Chambers were hanging out at Dorian's, a beautiful young woman walked in the door. He sort of jumped up and said, oh, I've got to go talk to this girl for a minute. Um, I'm friends with her older brother, and her boyfriend just broke up with her, and she's totally crushed. So they went outside. They were out there for, I don't know, 20 minutes talking, and it looked like an intense conversation. And She looked upset, and he looked upset, and then she left. And I thought, oh, he's such a good guy. I hope he made her feel better or whatever. Much later, after Jennifer Levin's funeral, Cap ran into this girl, and they got to talking. She told me that she had been seeing him and that when she showed up at Dorian's that night, he, when he went up to get her, he said, you know, I could only talk to you for a minute because that girl inside, I'm friends with her older brother. Talk about me. I'm friends with her older brother and her boyfriend just broke up with her and she's really upset. So I can't see you tonight. And we looked at each other like, oh my God. He was a master. It was pro. It's, it's still, that's one of the most upsetting things I can remember. It's just that feeling of, oh my God, like, it was so easy for him. But if Cap was starting to see the danger, Jennifer Levin was blissfully unaware. I was with her the night before she was murdered in Southampton, and it was the end of the summer before we were all going to college, and she said, I don't know whether I should stay out in Southampton or go to New York because I like Robert. The last thing in my mind was, oh, you're going to get strangled in Central Park. Don't go. I just wanted her to stay and have fun. So I you know, said, don't go, don't go, don't go. That very same night, Robert Chambers was staying with Alex Cap while her parents were out of town. He got up to leave. It was probably 4 or 5 in the morning. He got up to leave. And I said, you know, you can stay. You don't have to leave. And he said, no, 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 I got to get back. And he told me something that didn't quite make sense, like I have class or something. And he said... I don't want to walk home. Can I borrow money for a cab? And I said, sure, there's a 50 and a five in my wallet. You can take the five. And then he left. And I, I don't know, two, three minutes went by and something just, some bell rang in my head and I was in the dark. And then I just had this feeling and I checked my wallet and it was empty. Mm. So I called him. You know, this is probably three to four to five minutes later after he left. And he picked up the phone. And I said, oh, you're home. And he said, yeah, I just walked in the door. And I said, I think you took 
the 50 and the 5 by accident. Mm-hmm. And he sort of paused and said, I didn't take anything out of your wallet. And it was the straight, it was like uh, out of body for me. I, I, that $50, that was a big deal to me to have a $50 bill in my wallet at 16. I had just made sure it was there on the walk home. It, there was nothing, he, there was no possible way he was telling the truth. And that was the first time that I realized, oh my God, he, he just stole all my money and he's lying to me about it. And I said, there's no way, how would you, how did you get home so fast if you didn't take money for a cab? And he said, I ran. And he just, he lied. And I felt this terrible foreboding. I really did. I felt like, oh my God, something's not right here. That stolen $50 set off a chain of events which led to Jennifer Levin's death. A chain that prosecutor Linda Fairstein was unaware of at trial. The feeling of responsibility, uh, you know, I've weavered back and forth on that for over 30 years. It's a strange feeling. Uh, it depends how you look at things, but I'll explain sort of what happened and then you decide. <laughs> you decide whether I was responsible. Cap felt betrayed in a huge way, but she still wanted to talk things through. She asked Chambers to meet her at Dorian's the next evening at 8 o'clock. I was going to confront him. I wanted to tell him, like, this is wrong, and I know you stole my money. I think about 10.30 or 11, he finally showed up, and he sort of looked at me and walked right past me, and I was just enraged. And it just all went off the rails at that point. She confronted him demanded to know where he'd been. He said, I, you know, I had a horrible night. My little brother tried to commit suicide. And I was like, you're, what? You're, what do you mean your, your little brother tried to commit You're an only child. He said, not my real little brother. My little brother and the big brother, little brother program. And I think I actually started laughing. I was like, are you, are you kidding? Like, what? He's making this up on the spot. It was so absurd. And I was like, your little brother tried to commit suicide? He said, yes, and I've been trying to help him for the last, you know, three hours, and it was terrible, and I had to take him to the hospital. And I was like, when did you join the little brother, big brother program? Like, it was so obscure, but he was so quick. I mean, it came out like, like, like it was true, but I knew it wasn't true. So I was even more mad, and I said, you know, this is absurd. I asked you to meet me earlier. You didn't. You took my money, and he said, I didn't take anything from you, and it kind of got a little heated, and, and I walked away. All I wanted was for him to to say, you're right, I screwed up, and, you know, I don't know if I wanted him to say he stole my money. I wanted to believe he didn't, but I just knew that I, I was right, and he was wrong, and he needed to apologize, and he wasn't even slightly apologetic. He was being, he was being a dick. And then there was a, a slightly odd moment. I had never met Jennifer Levin. I'd seen her around, but I'd never really met her. And she came up to me and was very sweet and kind of said, I just want to be your friend. And she gave me her little macrame bracelet. I was like, what is she doing? Why is she doing this? It's weird. So I, I threw it in my purse. Cap stewed for a while, still focused on Chambers and his betrayal. Finally, she confronted him a second time. I don't know what possessed me. I had seven condoms, and I said, you know what, super dramatic. Use these with someone else, because you're not going to get the chance to use them with me. And I threw it in his face. The condoms went everywhere, landed in his lap, all over the floor. Everybody was laughing at him. 
And Chambers looked at Cap like he had never looked at her before. He was absolutely furious, like, you know, fury in his eyes. Cap stormed off after her dramatic gesture. It wasn't long after that Jennifer Levin approached Robert Chambers, and the two of them walked out of Dorian's into the night. What exactly happened in Central Park is something we may never know. We know the story of the evidence, Jennifer Levin's beaten body and bruised throat, her missing earrings. And we know the story told by Robert Chambers in his confession, that he accidentally killed Levin as she sexually assaulted him. Few people ever found that version of events believable, even the jury, who hung not because they were persuaded by Chambers' tale, so much as they were unpersuaded by the prosecution's failure to provide a motive. Knowing what we now know about Chambers' downward spiral, his fallout with Cap, the stolen $50, the public humiliation in Dorian's, those closest have some better guesses about what actually motivated Chambers to commit murder. Jennifer saw him come in, she ran up to him at the bar, and Alex Cap got mad at him uh, and split. And so we always believe that that's what made Robert really angry that night. That's prosecutor Linda Fairstein. Mm. And something that Jennifer said or did when they went to the park together set him off. I mean, I think he snapped. He didn't take her to the park to kill her. It's one of the problems we have with motive. Um, I don't think he intended to kill her when they were at Dorian's. I think that all happened after they got to the park, planning to have a sexual encounter, and something she said or did snapped. So that's the most haunting part. You know, what was it? What went wrong in three or five minutes in the park that you take a girl you know, who everybody saw you with that night, and beat and strangle her to death. Assistant District Attorney Steve Sirocco is equally focused on those three to five minutes. That's what a lot of people miss with this case. They say, well, do do you think he was really going to the park to intend to kill? The intent to kill can be formed in an instant. Mm -hmm. You got it? One of the things I suggested was that she had started to lecture him again about doing drugs, and they fought over that. Detective Mike Sheehan has a different theory. She goes to urinate because she drank so much water. Now she comes back, and our theory is that she now finds him rifling through her purse. She probably threatened to go back to Dorian's and tell the entire crowd, what the hell is wrong with you, Robert, you know? And I think this would have been the last straw for him. She's got to be stopped. His temper just exploded. He was punching her in the face. Left side of her face took the brunt of the blows. He gets on top of her. He has her in a prone position. She's defenseless. Jennifer Levin is fighting for her life. Imagine a desperation, gasping for breath, and this guy who's twice your size is on top of you, and, you know, he's in a wild rage. That's why the strangulation marks were so intense. Or was it something more embarrassing? I'll say it in the least graphic way I can. I don't think he could become aroused. And she probably said something, and I think he freaked out on her. Mm. Kind of like, oh, what's the problem where you're not into me? And that escalated, fueled by drugs. 
He snapped, and unfortunately, Jennifer was there when it happened. But ultimately, this is still all speculation. The only living person who knows exactly how it went down is Robert Chambers, and he didn't agree to speak with me. But his actions in the immediate aftermath of Jennifer Levin's death are telling. We found out the next day or so that Robert Chambers was sitting there watching us doing our investigation. He was sitting Just on sitting a outside the museum? In the back of the museum, where there are park benches where you can sit. His defense attorneys say this indicates how he was in a state of shock, stunned by this terrible accident. Watching the ambulances and the police arrive and sitting on a wall within 100 feet from the crime scene was Robert Chambers. He sat there and watched. His prosecutor says this indicates his cruel passivity, his sociopathic indifference. He sat on the wall behind the Metropolitan Museum of Art and waited and watched till her body was found, was there when police put her young body in a body bag and carried it off. And you don't sit on a wall and watch a girl you know be body bagged and not come forward and it had it been an accident, say it was. Who would just sit there watching, not saying anything to anyone? If you lie and feel no guilt and you know, you're able to like strangle someone and sit there and wait till the police come and go home and fall asleep, that says something. But what it says exactly is hard to say. Everyone responds to tragedy and trauma differently. I was certainly accused of not behaving appropriately too. And I viscerally remember what it's like to have my behavior scrutinized and distorted in the aftermath of my friend's death. But whatever you want to read into a facial expression or an act of comfort between two people, I think it's more telling whether or not you go to the police. Chambers didn't. It makes me wonder if, sitting there quietly on that wall, he realized that he only had a few hours left before his life was effectively over. Or if he spent that moment of quiet meditation frantically searching for a way out, imagining what story he could tell the world and himself to evade the full extent of the consequences of his actions. I imagine it was probably a little of both. I was to assist her medically in any way or try to get any aid for her? Did you try to mouth mouth resuscitation? Or? No, I didn't want to, I was scared. I didn't want to touch her. I you tried to assist her in any way. All I did was cross the street and sit down and sit there and stare. So your answer is no? No, I just stared. That's all I did. That's all I could do. And when you see the people arrive, the ambulances and the other people, you just disappear. And, no, I and, stayed know. there and I watched. I didn't say anything. After that, I just walked home and I just went to sleep. And when I woke up, I thought it was a dream. You thought this was all a dream? When I woke up at first, I was like, you know, that had to be a dream. It wasn't a dream. It wasn't even a nightmare. It was tragic, complicated, messy reality. 
and it threw everyone who loved Jennifer Levin into a state of panic and confusion. Jennifer's murder was almost like a 9-11 moment. Everything kind of changed then. It really shattered my vision of the world and life and safety. My mother calls me and she says, Jess, Jennifer has been killed. Jennifer Levin is dead. And I literally lose it. Like, I just don't even know what that means. This person who you had just spoken on the phone with, who was your best friend, was killed? He killed her. He killed her. Why? Peter Davis heard through a phone call as well. A friend of mine just said, Jennifer's been murdered. It was the first thing he said to me, and I kind of dropped the phone, and I just walked right into days. It just never seemed real. When you're 18, you really don't expect anyone to die. And mm -hmm. then it was the next day that you couldn't avoid it, because in New York, you walk by newsstands, and then newspapers were everywhere, and it was just on the cover of everything. Pictures of him with, like, the mm -hmm. scratches on his face. You know, because she fought for her life. He said it was yeah. like his cat had scratched him. I wouldn't call it denial. It was disbelief. Mm hmm And walking around in kind of an unreal fog. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I, I deeply relate to that. Um, because, you know, when, when my roommate was murdered, I was completely shocked and, and couldn't believe it and almost, like, literally couldn't believe it. Um, and I was in a daze, too. Exactly. I think that, you know, I relate to how you lived afterwards. I didn't, like, lock myself in the bedroom and hysterically mm -hmm. cry. It was almost like you're in this alternate reality and you kind of go into, you know, fight or flight. You just kind of go on with life. Yeah. It took a long time to even accept it and to realize that it was real. Even after her funeral, it didn't seem real. Alex Cap didn't get a call. She waited for a call from Robert Chambers that never came. In her mind, her theatrical breakup with Chambers the night before in Dorian's Red Hand, throwing the condoms in his face, was just a fight and she still hoped they'd somehow get past it. I woke up the next morning and he hadn't called and I hadn't heard from him and I showed up back at my apartment with two packs of cigarettes and two containers of Hershey's chocolate milk and I waited on my soup for three hours and he never showed and I just sobbed and sobbed and sobbed. At that point, my friend called and said, you need to come over right now. And I said, well, I don't even have money for a cab. And he took it. She said, you know, my doorman will pay for your cab. Just get over here. And that's when I got there. She was standing there on the street in pajamas with a newspaper. And that was the beginning, well, the end and the beginning of the rest of it. I do remember feeling relieved that, um, I mean, this tells you where my head was at 16. I remember being relieved that, that there was a reason he didn't show up, which is that he'd been arrested and was in custody with police. Mm -hmm. And I felt this sort of self-satisfaction like oh see he doesn't he still does love me he just couldn't come because he's at the police station i thought that he was mad at me and he left with her and that things had gone sideways 
and that it was an accident. It never occurred to me that he actually murdered her. It just, I thought, well, he was trying to get back at me, so he left with her, and mm-hmm. something happened. Alex Cap was torn. She wanted to defend her boyfriend. She also felt herself drawn to attend Jennifer Levin's funeral. I sat in the way back. I didn't talk to anybody. I felt terrible. I just felt terrible. And I didn't know her, and I felt weird being there. I felt a little bit like, you know, an ambulance chaser, you know, like a, a rubbernecker. And I don't think I'd caught on yet. I think maybe it was starting to come together, but I didn't. I still, I still loved this guy. I thought, wow, that could have been me. You know, like, what if he and I had gone to the park together? And what if we'd had, but he was never like that with me. So it, it almost didn't make sense. I felt like I had to be there. And I was there and I left. I didn't, like I said, I didn't talk to anybody. I just felt, I, I remember being afraid that if her mother saw me there, she'd scream and kick me up. Cap was also torn about Robert Chambers' trial. A part of her wanted to defend him. He wrote me letters when he was first at Rikers. It was all about him and how this was really hard for him and he'd been completely misunderstood and the truth would come out and he loved me so deeply and please stand by me and you know I love you and this is all going to be over soon, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I believed it. I was subpoenaed by both sides and we played the witness on both sides to keep me from having to testify. Mm-hmm. You know, I was sort of, I was definitely coached to, to play dumb on some things and to, to tell the prosecution that I just adored him, which I did, and to tell the defense that I thought he was a murderer. So it's sort of, I became <sighs> an unusable witness on both sides, which was my parents' feeling. And by the way, I was mad. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to testify. Not necessarily to defend him, She was conflicted. But just to tell her side of the story, her honest experience. I got a call on the dorm hall phone, and somebody said, oh, it's Jack. And I was like, I don't know who that is. So I went and picked it up, and it was Jack Whitman calling me. I was 17, freshman. And he was calling me on my hall dorm phone. How he even found out where I was, I don't know. And starts grilling me and asking me all sorts of questions. And, you know, are you going to defend this guy? You know, he's been nothing but good to you. And you need to get in there and you need to defend him. And I was like, oh, my God. And I remember saying specifically, you are not allowed to call me. I'm 17. You're not allowed to call me here. And I hung up the phone. I was proud of myself. But the trauma of this tragedy still left Cap feeling, in some uncertain way, at fault. And it screwed her up. I was very... Um, I was ashamed. I, I felt, I drank a lot, I smoked a lot of cigarettes, I dated a lot of, dated as a generous word, um, guys, I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I know that I don't have a lot of friends left from high school, and I would imagine that I wasn't very fun as a senior. I mean, maybe I was drawing attention to myself or the opposite, but I just didn't, I didn't come out of it for a long time. Just a a rampant lack of respect for myself. Just terrible. It's still there. You know, it doesn't go away. It's always this sort of stigma. My first boyfriend was was a murderer. I mean, it's become a, you know, cocktail party joke to some degree. So many times people were like, oh, why didn't he kill you? I'm like, I don't know. God, ask him. (laughs) Why did he kill anybody? I, I don't know. 
was I part of the, the series of events that led to this? Possibly. But I, no one makes somebody murder somebody. So where did her feeling of fault come from? It's gaslighting. It's constant gaslighting. It's, it's, trying, it's telling people that they're wrong for being right, like that they're making this up. You convince someone that they're, that they're crazy mm. for trusting their instincts. And that is what stuck with me my whole life is, you know, it is something I started telling my own daughters when they were eight or nine years old. Always trust your gut. Always trust your gut. It will never be wrong, especially for girls and women. It's just so important to not shut that voice down. If it's yelling at you, there's a reason. Jennifer Levin's friends were haunted, too. Here's Peter Davis. I kept seeing her and other people. I almost got like hit by a car in Madison Avenue. I kept seeing her mm. for a long time after that. Sounds like her absence would be really pronounced then. It was really pronounced. You, know, you feel like you're invincible when you're that age. And all of a sudden, you're kind of wake up and like, oh, horrible things can happen. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter that, you know, I have a nice family and go to private school and my friends seem nice, like people get murdered. And the, the person who murdered them can, you know, get out of prison. And here's Jessica Doyle. It's a very stark way to start out life as an adult. Yeah. I mean, she was killed and I had, I had been 19 for just over a month at that point. You're a baby. Yeah, I was broken. What do you think shocked you the most about it? That it had happened to Jennifer, that it had happened the way it happened, that it was Robert? Um, Um, Gosh, that's a good question. I've never thought about that specifically. I've never kind of compartmentalized and, and, and separated out, weeded out all the different shocks, the level of shockingness. I'm sorry, it just brings tears to my eyes. Um, sorry. I, it's fine. I mean, it's just, you know, it's still there. Like, you just, you, you think like, oh, you know, God, get over it. Come on, man, move on, you know. And you do move on. I mean, what are you going to do? You move on. But you never get over it. You just don't. You really don't. The, the, the brutality mm-hmm. and the gruesomeness and the... I think it was a combination of things. I think one, I think there was three factors that were the most just like that still just stain my heart. One, that it was Jennifer Levin. And because of who she was and because of how lovely she was and vivacious and, 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 and such a lovely person and a lovely person. She didn't have a mean bone in her body. But what was shocking in relation to it being Robert Chambers is that he was so um, kind of angry but placid right angry Mm. but mute angry but faint you know like i was saying before he was the silent type Mm. so it was kind of shocking like it's like god did he really like go that far like is he that so filled with self-hate and he was so unhinged and the details of the murder Mm. That the, his his hands around her neck, this little woman's tiny teenage body, six foot four, two hundred pound man, to 
to the point where her eyes popped out of their sockets. I know I keep saying it over and over again, and I know it's gruesome, but you have to think of the time, the act of the murder, and the amount of time that it took to commit the murder. Mm -hmm. And that, I just cannot get over that. The scratches all over his face and chest. I mean, what does it take? I mean, it sounds like what really haunts you is imagining what it was like to be Jennifer in that moment. It does. It truly does. I think people need to learn that, you know, women need to be listened to and heard and believed. And they need to have a stake in their own destiny. And Jennifer was not given a stake in her own destiny. She had no voice. Her own destiny was taken from her in multiple ways. Mm. Not only the physical living soul, the actual physical soul human being, the brain, her breath, right? That was taken from her. But also her dignity. Her dignity was taken from her. She was not only slaughtered and murdered in fucking Central Park, excuse my language, but on top of it, in the trial, she was raped and murdered and brutalized again. So it is my duty to try and at least hold on to and preserve or resurrect. I mean, I don't know. What is it like to look back on all of this today, on your memories of Jennifer? Um, and if you could say anything to her, what would it be? Um... I guess, I don't know. I just, I, I think I would like to be able to spend time with her to kind of talk it through mm. and just sort of examine what went down and discuss her relationship with Robert. And I mean, it's hard. I mean, my instinct is to say, I'd like to throw my arms around her and say, I'm so sorry, you know, and I wish that I had protected you, you know, but I mean, that's also like a weird, like, fantasy role here. I mean, I'm not, you know, you, you don't know that these things are going to happen, right? So, right. But, so, to remove the sort of superhero fantasy, I, I, I think, I think I would just like to sort of just talk it out. Like, you know, what do you think went down with Robert? And mm. what, in between the two of you, more to the point, like... Why did he decide to mm -hmm. turn to murder as a way to express himself? Did you see signs of, you know, holes in his character while you were together? Were there, was, were, the, were the seams starting to rip? Were the threads coming unwoven? Were there any signs of his, you know, misery and his hate and his... I just want to, I'd love to just ask her about it, you know, and just talk it through. And I'd just like to hear what she has to say. Honestly, I would like to hear what she has to say. That's really what it would be. You know, her voice, she, we don't have her voice here. And I would like to hear her voice. I've often thought the same thing about Meredith. I bet you have, honey. Jesus. <laughs> you know... 
talking to Jennifer Levin's closest friends really brought home for me how easy it is to lose sight of the real people in these newsworthy tragedies. The people who become characters in legal and tabloid stories, who become cultural touchstones for activist movements. Jennifer Levin wasn't just a character. She was Jessica Doyle's friend. She was Peter Davis's friend. How does that make you feel? You know, sad. Sad for her family and sad for her reputation and her memory. More than reputation, her memory. Because it really became all about him. She was Steve Levin's daughter. She was my flesh and blood. Even just to think how sad it was that she spent the last few moments of her life with someone who didn't care about her or value her. It's very sad. I can't get over that one. It's too painful. To me, she brought to mind my own missing friend and roommate and the desperation of wanting to hear her voice again, not just because she knows the real truth, but because she deserves to be heard. Um, thank you for going there with me. I know it's hard. Well, I want to thank you because I was just going about to say the same thing. I know I'm sure it must be hard. Mm. And I'm, I am sorry. Thanks. I'm sincerely sorry. I'm sorry you lost your friend. Me too. Me too. Really. <sighs> I guess it just would be nice if we could be, if we could have their voices, you know, because they know a bit of a bit about the truth of what went down that we don't know. So we're really seeking the truth, ultimately, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> thank you for taking the time to ask such poignant questions. <laughs> Most um, people don't ask such thoughtful questions. Sorry. So I thank you. Yeah. Well, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Love, All right. love. You yeah. too. Okay. Bye. Bye. After Jessica Doyle hung up, I couldn't bring myself to leave the seclusion of my vocal booth for quite a while. My partner, Chris, left the tape rolling. You okay? I'm okay. How are you feeling? Sad. I have a lot of unanswered questions too, you know? There are always unanswered questions when someone's life is cut short. Things only they would know about what really happened at the moment of their death. But unanswered questions are hard to bear. And so... Over time, we tell ourselves larger stories that don't so much fill in those crucial gaps as much as they try to make sense of the senseless at the broader level of society. Over the past 30 years, the main players of this story, 
the victim, Jennifer Levin, the defendant, Robert Chambers, and even the prosecutor, Linda Fairstein, have become symbols in some of our more contentious contemporary debates around white male privilege, slut-shaming and victim-blaming, cancel culture, and the perversion of justice. I mean, she basically, as they say, got canceled and had everything taken away from her. If a woman says that she likes making love with a man, she's immediately characterized as a slut. If you are white, privileged, male, you can get away with murder. Next time on The Truth About True Crime, white male privilege, cancel culture, and victim blaming. Has society changed at all since the preppy murder? In the final episode of this season, join me as I explore the legacy of this crime, for it didn't end in the 1980s. This podcast is written and produced by me, Amanda Knox, and my partner, Christopher Robinson, and directed, edited, and sound designed by Galen Mullins. It is executive produced by Malka Media, Sundance TV, and AMC Digital Studios. To dig deeper, be sure to check out the Sundance TV docuseries, The Preppy Murder, Death in Central Park, at SundanceTV.com. And please subscribe, rate, review, and share the truth about true crime.